Good morning. Thank you for letting me be here. Words matter. Words matter. You're a product of a narrative. For some of you, the narrative was dark and death. Some light and life, some a combination, everybody a combination. But irregardless, you're a product of a narrative. That's reality. You understand. I'm going to make you smile here for a minute because I want to say something to you that I think the older people here will understand. You're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. <laughs> and you don't have to be Michael Jordan for that to happen. This morning, I'm going to tell you uh, five stories. Don't worry, I'm not going to get real long. And I will quote a poem. But before we do that, I want to uh, just quote our text, and then I'll pray. In our text, it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. You're very familiar with it. It says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Not of works. Lest any man should boast. And then we have the next portion that sometimes we do not read. And it says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. The word workmanship there is an interesting Greek word. It's a little word called poema. And poema can be translated, in fact, it is translated in New Living Translation, it's translated masterpiece. So we could say, you are his masterpieces. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, I just pray that you would uh, use me this morning, despite me. I pray that Christ would be glorified. I pray that you speak to hearts. I pray, Lord, people be saved here today. I pray that the saints would be encouraged. And I pray, Lord, that if there's conviction upon hearts that they would respond to that at the end when uh, they have a chance to pray. So, Father, I yield this to you. Holy Spirit, have your way in here today. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1880, we're going we're to kind of go around history here for a few minutes. In 1880, Andrew Carnegie... Some of us old people would know who he is. I think most people are familiar with Andrew Carnegie. Andrew Carnegie, who was at that time the richest man in the world, uh, had 43 millionaires working for him. Now, you've got to understand, that's $26.7 million in our day and time. And so he was interviewed, and he was asked a question, how did you get 43 millionaires to work for you? His response was, well, they weren't millionaires when they went to work for me. And so then the next question, how did you develop 43 millionaires? Now, I'm going to tell you, what he said is something we all need to learn from, especially we who own a business and deal with people. And we all do deal with people. But here's what he said. He said, when a man owns a gold mine, he moves tons and tons and tons of dirt. But he's not a dirt miner. He's not a dirt miner. I'm afraid that in our day and time that we're very, very 
focused on the dirt. Within every life, there's a gold, vein of gold in every life in here today. And so today, I'm going to mine for gold. That's my job. My job is to unearth gold. It's just to bring it out. The narrative. You know, there's a world's narrative and there's God's narrative. And they're very different. They're very, very, very different. You know, if you were to go into Ephesians 1, which I'm not going to do right now, but if you were going to Ephesians 1 before you get to Ephesians 2 and you were to read what God has to say about you, it would stun you. It would blow your brain away. I mean, man, accepted in the beloved, more than conquerors. You know, we're, we, we had the very power that raised Christ from the dead dwelling in us. It's, it's amazing what God says about you. You know, the Bible says that if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. That's amazing, isn't it? The Bible says that everything that pertaineth to life and godliness dwells in you. The Bible says you are complete in him. Those are just a few of the words of God's narrative about you. About you. Masterpiece. In 1957, a painting went on the auction block over in Europe. <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was pretty rugged looking at that time. It had not been restored or anything like that. It was kind of eh, needed some work, let's say. And it sold for 72 American dollars, which would have been a pretty good amount of money in 1957. In 2017, the same painting went on the auction block at Christie's of New York. When it got to $300 million, people gasped, set a new record. <clears throat> when it got to $400 million, people cheered. Sold for $450.3 million. It's a picture of Jesus. It's called the Salvador Mundi. And so you might ask the question, what made the difference? What changed it from $72 to $450.3 million? Well, they discovered it was painted by a guy named Leonardo da Vinci. The thing that made the difference had nothing to do with the painting. It was the same painting. Same paint. Same walnut that it was painted on. Everything was the same. With the exception of one thing. The master. The reason it's called a masterpiece is because it's a piece of the master. Amen? So who made you? Who made you? So if we could find a table that Jesus built and we could authenticate that Jesus built the table, we have all the documentation and everything and we put it on the auction block. We allow people from all over the world, dignitaries and heads of states and business people to pull their money and stuff like that. And, and at the end of the auction, how much do you think that a table that Jesus built would bring? Be priceless, wouldn't it? So again, let me ask you the question, who made you? Who made you?
See, your value has nothing to do with the peace. It has to do with the master of the peace. You're a masterpiece, for you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works. But there is something else that determines the value of something. And that's how much someone is willing to pay for it. And so God, who is smarter than everyone, determining your value. He looked at all the stars in the celestial glory. He looked from one end of the universe to the other. He saw the galaxies and constellations, the majesty of the wonder of the stars. And he looked at you. And he looked at the stars and he looked at you. And he says, you know, I think you're worth more than that. So he came down to the earth. He beheld the majesty of the mountains and the glory of the seas. He considered the the beauty of the landscapes. He looked at all the great architecture that man has built. He tasted the best food. He smelled the flowers. He heard the music. He looked at you. He said, I think you're worth more than that. So he went up to heaven. He beheld the streets of gold, the gates of pearl, all the majesty of the New Jerusalem with the jaspers and the sardius stones and that are encrusted in the walls of the New Jerusalem. And he looked at it all. I mean, think about this, folks. It took him six days to make what we call the universe. Amen? He'd been working on heaven for 2,000 years. If he can do all this in six days, what can he do in 2,000 years? And he looked at the the greatest things that he has ever made up there. And he looked at you and he said, you are worth more than all of it. So then he called forth the angels, Michael, Gabriel, the cherubim, the seraphim. He, He listened to their angelic choir. He considered their great exploits and the fact that they had not left their original estate. And they've been the guardians of man. They've been the praisers of God for all these centuries. And he looked at that and he looked at you billions of those angels standing there and he looked at you individually and he said you are worth more than all the angels and then he looked at his son and he looked at you you can almost see a tear coming down the face of God as he knew what the answer was. And he said, you are worth the life of my son. So I asked you a question a while ago. If we had a table that Jesus built, how much would it bring? Priceless, right? So how much is the son worth? How much is the life of Jesus Christ worth? According to God, that's your value. You say, how do you know that? Because that's how much he paid for you. Amen? He paid for you with the life of his son. You're priceless, folks. You're priceless. Yeah, let's go to another place in history. I'll tell you another story. 
So I've got a couple, three stories down now. So we'll go to another one. So we'll go back to the first century time of Jesus. His father had a couple of sons. And the, older, the, the younger son, kind of rebellious. You know the story, story of prodigal son. So he went to his father and he said, Father, uh, I want my inheritance. I, I don't want to live here anymore. I don't want to be a part of this household. I want to go and do my thing. And the father tried to talk him out of it, I'm sure, but the son would have nothing to do with that. And so the, reluctantly, the father gave him his inheritance. The son went off into a far country where the Bible says he lived riotously. And boy, I mean, he, he had it all. Everything a young man could want, he had it. Women, drink, song, party. He had it all, and it was so good until the money ran out. And when the money ran out, the women ran out, the friends ran out, the party ran out, the booze ran out, the song ran out, and the food ran out. Hungry, destitute, and alone, he found a farmer who would allow him to take care of his pigs for a few morsels of bread. One day down in the pigsty, he looked at the pigs and he thought, my goodness, even the pigs are better off than me. I will go back to my father's house. I know that he'll never receive me back as a son. But maybe, just maybe, he'll let me be a servant. So here's the part of the story that you've never heard. I don't know that this happened, but it's my story, so I'm going to tell it the way I want to. He goes to his boss. He said, boss, I'm leaving. And the boss said, where are you going? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go home. Uh, maybe my father will take me back as a servant. <laughs> Listen, son. Your father's reputation precedes you. Your father's a nobleman. And there's nobody in your father's house like you. Go back to the pigs. He said, you may be right, but I'm going to try. So he starts down the road. He gets down the road a little ways. Some of his friends that he partied with came up to him and said, where are you going? I'm going home. Maybe I can be a servant in my father's household. <laughs> Do you remember the parties? Yeah. You're unholy. The boss said you're undeserving. The friend said you're unholy. Your father's a nobleman. There's no place for you. You may be right, but I'm going to try. He goes a little bit further. He comes across some women that he partied with. Where are you going? I'm going home. Maybe my father will take me back as a servant. Do you remember the nights? Yeah, I do. Do you really think that your father, the nobleman, will take you? I mean, 
You're undesirable. I don't know. But what I got to lose? Goes a little bit further. He gets to the edge of Israel. He hears one word. One word. Unclean. 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 They never offer him bread or water. They never offer him clothing to cover his nakedness. They never offer him a roof to sleep under or a tub to take a bath. No. One word, unclean. Unclean, unclean. He gets to his hometown and he's thinking, you know, I grew up with these people. Maybe, just maybe, the people here will let me back. Yeah, they'll remember me. We played together. But it wasn't to be. What are you doing back here? We don't want you here. You're unwanted. And then he sees his brother off in the distance. And his brother sees him and he sees his brother coming his way. He thinks, this is my brother. His brother said, what are you doing back here? We buried you a long time ago. There's no place here for you. You're unloved. And he knew in his own heart the very words that he was going to say to his father. I'm unworthy. Undeserving. Unholy. Undesirable. Unclean. Unwanted. Unloved. Unworthy. Can you relate? But then the father saw him. The narrative was about to change. Amen? Because we're a product of a narrative. Remember that. Words matter. The father said, quick, go get the fatted calf and kill it and prepare a feast. Go get me the robe that, that for my son and get me the rings for his finger and sandals for his for his feet because my son has come home and, and he takes the robe and he takes the, the sandals and he takes the rings and he runs out to his son and the son starts to say I am no longer worthy and the father says shh you're my son your flesh of my flesh your bone of my bone and today is a day of rejoicing because my son has come home. It doesn't matter what your boss says or thinks. It doesn't matter what the friends say or think. It doesn't matter what the women or men say or think. It doesn't matter what your countrymen say or think. It doesn't matter what the people in your town say or think. It doesn't matter what your brother says or think. And it really doesn't matter. It didn't matter in his life what he thought. The only thing that mattered and the only thing that matters in life is what the Father says. And you know what the Father said about you? He said, you're worth the life of my son. Amen? So let me tell you one more story. I'm almost done. 
This one goes back to 1870. In fact, October 13th of 1870, a young boy was born to an unwed mother in a day and a time when, when that wasn't a good thing. The boy's name was Ben Hooper, and Ben would become the victim of the untimely birth. He'd be ridiculed, he'd be called names, he'd be rejected. He would not be wanted. Ben hated his childhood. He really did not want to be around people very much. And his mother, recognizing what this was doing to young Ben, moved from Newport, Tennessee to another small town in Tennessee. And, but it was more the same. And so she tried a different route. She went to a larger city. She went to Knoxville, Tennessee. But in Knoxville, she got to a place where she could no longer take care of young Ben. And she put Ben into an orphanage. And so now Ben has been rejected by a father, he's been rejected by society, and he's been rejected by his mother. His father, back in Newport, heard of the situation, came to the orphanage and adopted Ben, took him back to Newport, Tennessee, which was not where he wanted to go back to. And so he pretty much became a loner and he stayed alone he heard that there was a preacher that had come to Newport and he really wanted to hear this preacher. And he went and he heard him and he really liked what he heard. But he had a pattern in his life. He would get there after the service started and he would always leave before the service ended. And that way he didn't have to be around people. And this became his pattern. But one Sunday he got so caught up in this service that he failed to leave and his greatest fears came upon him he finds himself surrounded by the very people he didn't want to be surrounded by and then he felt two big hands on his shoulder and young Ben looked up and it was the preacher and the preacher asked him the question that he never wanted to be asked whose family are you from? What does he say? I'm rejected by my mother. I'm rejected by a father. I'm rejected by society. What do you say to that question? But before he could answer, the preacher said, I recognize the family resemblance. He said, you're from the family of God. He said, son, God is your father. Live in that reality. Many years later, Ben Hooper would write in his autobiography, that was the day that I became the governor of the state of Tennessee. He served from 1911 to 1914. He served two terms in the State House of Representatives. He served under President Harding in his cabinet. He actually, where we would know him more than anything else, even though you didn't know his name before today, but you'll never forget it anymore. He was the chief purchasing agent of the Great Smoky Mountain National Park. 
And it all began with a narrative. I recognize you. You're from the family of God. So let me quote you a poem, and then I'll be done, except for an invitation, because I am going to give you an invitation today. I know it's not common in the present day and time, but I'm I'm an old-fashioned kind of guy. And I'm going to give you an invitation to follow Christ, to come into a new narrative. The poem goes something like this. It said it was tattered and scarred, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste much time on that old violin. But he held it up with a smile. He said, what am I bid for this old violin? Who started bidding for me? One dollar? One dollar? Who'll make it two? Two dollars? Who'll make it three? Three dollars once? Three dollars twice? But no. From the back of the room, a gray-bearded man came forward. He picked up the bow. He wiped the dust off that old violin. He tightened up the strings. And he played a melody, pure and sweet, as sweet as the angels sing. When the music ended, the auctioneer, in a voice quiet and low, said, What am I bid for the old violin? He held up with a bow. One thousand, one thousand, who make it two? Two thousand, who make it three? Three thousand once, three thousand twice, going and gone, said he. The crowd cheered, a few of them cried. They said, we don't quite understand what changed its worth. Came the quick reply, the touch of the master's hand. Many a man with his life out of tune, tattered and scarred by sin, is auctioned cheap to a thoughtless crowd just like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a song, and they travel on. Going once, going twice, going, and almost gone. But the master comes, and the thoughtless crowd never quite understands. The worth of a soul, what a change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. Now today, It's always my conviction that God is going to do something. I'm never surprised when God moves. I'm surprised if he doesn't. I'm never surprised when people give their lives to Jesus. I'm surprised when they don't. I mean, my goodness, what is it about Jesus that you wouldn't want? Amen? I mean, I understand why you don't want religion. But tell me what it is about Jesus that you wouldn't desire. He's incredible. He's amazing. And I want to tell you what he can do today. He can change your life completely. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter how deep that gold is buried, he's got a golden spade and he can find the gold and he can bring it out of you. All you got to do is trust him. The passage of scripture where it says we are his workmanship, it started off with this, for by grace are you saved through faith. Grace just simply means now you're not deserving of it, but he loves you a whole bunch. Amen? He loves you a lot. Faith. Boy, that magical word, faith. Not magic. My goodness. You're sitting in a, a pew right now trusting that it'll hold you up. 
That's faith. You got in a car here and you drove here. That's faith. I mean, you ate your wife's breakfast this morning trusting that she didn't put poison in it. <laughs> That's faith. You know? How many times do you enact faith every single day of your life and every single moment of every day of your life? You say, what's the difference? The difference is, is my goodness, you're trusting things that will fail you. There's one thing, one person that will never fail you ever. And he's saying, trust me. Trust me. Faith is just trusting him. Jesus died for you. He died and took your place so that you would not have to bear your sin in judgment. But you have to trust him. I want you to do something. I want you to bow your heads where you're at. Close your eyes. No one look around. This is private. If you're here today and you do not know 100% sure that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, you want it to be. But you have never had that point in place in time where you have followed him, where you've given your life to him, where you have been baptized and just trusted him. If you're not saved, but you say, Dan, pray for me. I desire that in my life. Would you do something for me? No one looking around. Would you just lift your hand and say, pray for me? Anyone? Anyone? Just lift your hand. Amen. Amen. Anyone else? Amen. 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 Several people around the room lifting their hands. Amen. Praise God. Praise God. I want you to do, the ones that raised their hand, I want you to look at me. No one else look around. Just the ones that just raised their hand, just look at me. And I just want to speak to you for a second. The Bible says we shouldn't be ashamed of Christ. Amen? We should not be ashamed of him. And we shouldn't. So I'm going to invite you to do something. I want the elders of the church, if you would, the ones that are on the prayer team, if y'all would just kind of do what you did a while ago and just go around the church. These are people that you can trust. These are people that will speak to you and listen to you and share with you. So I want you to do something. I don't want you to be ashamed of Jesus. It's important that you take a stand for Christ. If you'll take a stand for him right now, I promise you, it'll be easy for you to stand for him for the rest of your life. You know, it, it's, I don't know why people are ashamed to stand for Christ. So I want you to do something. You ones that are looking at me uh, around the room, I want y'all to just stand up where you're at and just go back to some of the people that are around the room and just share with them where you're at and they'll talk to you. And so I invite you to do that right now. I think we're going to have a song. And so just, just stand up and go back, just like you were doing a Billy Graham crusade, you know. Just go back and do that. God bless you. Thank you for allowing me to speak. Right now, please, go back to these people who are around the room.